0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan,
2: are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.
1: Hello and welcome back to Syria's Lost Generation, a podcast about young people displaced by war. This show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the humanitarian groups World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Liam Cunningham. In the first five episodes of the podcast, we visited Syria, Lebanon and Jordan to learn about the plight of some of the more than 12 million people who've been displaced by a decade of conflict. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Hassam el Haraki, a friend of mine from Syria who fled the war five years ago at age 16 and now lives near Stuttgart in Germany. But before that, we're once more joined by David Enders, a Beirut-based journalist who has covered the war in Syria and has been our guide to the conflict so far. David, welcome back. Hi, Liam. As we conclude our series, do you have any thoughts about Syria's future or what comes next for those who have been displaced?
2: Well, in the last few days, I've reached out to some of my Syrian colleagues and friends from my time working in the country and covering the war. One thing they all have in common is that they no longer live in Syria. Some are wanted by both the government and rebel groups that were intolerant of any dissent. All of them have simply gone in search of better, safer, more stable lives. They're all still involved in making films, researching, writing about the conflict, or managing humanitarian efforts in Syria. And they may have left, but what is happening in Syria is very much still front and center in their minds. Another thing they have in common is that they don't see this ending anytime soon. This is Nidal, a friend of mine who grew up in Damascus and is now living in the U.S. He was forced to leave the country in 2012.
0: Oh, it it might go on for more than 10 years even, like maybe for other 40 years, David. I don't see it, like, really close to an end. The end of this, if if what's going on in Syria has only one solution, that Al-Assad should go away and then start a new chapter in Syria, whether, like, to continue a civil war that would end in a way or another at the end. But, like, an Assad in power, and this is going on, this is not going to end any time soon at all, I mean... (laughs) He destroyed the whole country. He he humiliated people. He imprisoned. He he killed. He I mean, he is he is a murderer, and he should go to the court. He should be imprisoned and held accountable. But as long as he's in power, this is gonna go like on and on, and maybe on and off and off and on, until he's gone, until something changed. It's
1: disheartening. It is.
2: And I think really one of the hardest things for Syrians is coming to terms with the fact that their revolution was hijacked by outside powers. As long as Russia, Turkey, Iran, and other countries continue to play a large role there, there's not much hope for a better Syria. This is Humam, a filmmaker I met after he was injured in Homs in 2012, in the same rocket strike that killed British journalist Marie Colvin. He lives outside Syria now, but when I caught up with him, he was working in the north on a film about life in one of the camps there.
3: I see two wars in Syria. The first war is between the international powers. In this war, I think Syrians has nothing to do with it, because we have no choice in that war. And we have another war uh, with, um, for us as Syrians, it's, it's some kind of uh, challenge to rebuild our country. I just want to play
2: one more clip of Humam because even with all the despair, he does have some hope.
3: When I go to the camps and see all these children, uh, the life they they live is really not not easy life. But still, uh, you find many of these children trying to have a dream of Syria. I mean, although uh, most of them, they have Uh, known nothing in their lives but war, but still somehow they have a dream that we want to have a future in our country. So I see hope in the future, and I think if you want to have a bright future, you need to work for that. So I try to build this future with other Syrians, and that's what gives me hope.
2: But Liam, let's get back to Hassam. How did you
1: meet him? I first met Hassam, uh, this incredibly impressive young man. And he was, I think, just into his 16, 16 and a half years old. Uh, He had left one of the camps without permission, him and his mother, and had managed to get a small flat in uh, Idlib, uh, this town, I think it's about an hour and a half away from the capital of Man. And uh, we met him on the street because he was fearful that the Jordanian police would see our little van arriving and it would bring eyes upon him. And if he was found, him and his mom would be put back into the camp. And uh, my handlers at World Vision, who had introduced me to him, said, you're going to like this guy. He's a fantastic guy. And they was, it's one of those things when people talk about another human being, you kind of say, oh, he must be impressive. Because they smiled when they mentioned his name. And true enough, when I met him, um, was this extraordinary bundle of energy, this incredibly positive self-confident young man we went around to his apartment met his mom uh, and we were talking and he had a a mobile phone in front of him with a a full-size keyboard and every day and he was religious about this every day in the afternoon he would sit down and do at least two hours perhaps a lot more and he was learning German off YouTube uh, which is of, of course incredibly impressive especially from a young man a teenager who you would imagine be out playing with his friends and, and just being a young man. And he had this level of um, of discipline. What I didn't know at the time, he had already done this with English. So when he was in the camp, he was teaching himself off his mobile phone uh, to improve his English. Uh, and now he was moving on to a second language. And um, he spoke incredibly positively about um, how to improve his situation. He He gave himself a number of projects. His main project when I met him um, was to expedite his his getting out of Jordan and and um, reuniting with his family uh, in Germany. His brother they had been separated um, when they arrived to Jordan, and his brother uh, was the first one to get out of the country and get to Stuttgart. So that gave them a kind of um, an end game to um, to arrive. Uh, at least somebody would be there, a friendly face, a family member. Um and the trouble was that uh, his passport was going to be up in January and I had met him I think in August. Uh, so he hadn't got a lot of time um that he would have travel papers to um to get to Germany um, with his mother. Um so um but he wasn't defeatist about things at all. Um it, it was it was just um it was another level of difficulty that has had in his, his life that needed to be uh, overcome. And it's very difficult to turn away from somebody who has that faith in themselves and has that sunny disposition and who hasn't been beaten down by circumstance. Um, And and just my admiration was and continues to be um, huge towards this young man. And the conversation
2: we're about to hear is recent. Uh, Had you spoken to him in a while because it seems like uh, had anything changed in his life?
1: (laughs) You could say that, David. Every time uh, Hossam messages me, I kind of I I look through, I close one eye and I press the the button and I have a look at what what particular thing he's um, he's accomplished. Uh, and every time it's just something that you kind of go, where the hell did that come from? And one of them was that he did tell me I'm thinking of becoming an actor, which I I immediately panicked uh, because it's a ridiculous career choice. I just love the rollout of his life. They're, they're going from from disaster, from almost certain disaster, have from having his life turned upside down, nearly getting killed, nearly losing his family. You know, I think he's got the acting bug out of his way, thank God. But he's getting on with his life. Um, he's, um, you know, he's got the prospect of 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 things that us, we take for granted. And, uh, you know, Hassan is not a he, he's, he's not unique. There's 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 ladies and gents all over. Uh, they're displaced who are getting on with their lives and they deserve so much better. They deserve the chances that Hassan has had for normality. OK, enough from me. Let's hear the conversation. Um, I started asking uh, Hassam what life was like for him in Syria before he got displaced.
4: So, um, before the war begins, my father was a wealthy man, I would say. So, he was getting into business and I would say we had money. So, I'm proud of it because other people in Syria they don't have money and it's stressful and it's it's hard difficult but our
1: family somehow we we had money so we lived we lived well yeah a lot of people in the west um just lacking information would have thought that people in the middle east refugees from a war were goat herders were subsistence farmers and it's taken me a while as as it has with you Hassan, to to convince people that there was university students, there was middle-class people, upper-class people. I heard, I heard somebody use the term in Syria that people were at the opera on Saturday night and their houses were bombed on Sunday. There was a all stratas of society, all levels of society were affected by this thing, as there is for every war.
4: Exactly. So um, I was 11 and... Um... We were getting news about the war is escalating. The war just got more and more. What I actually really remember is um, after the, the Friday pray, we, we go to pray in the mosque. So when we go back to, to our uh, home, as we were walking home, a car on the side of the village got bombed. A car. So. Because uh, nearby our village uh, was um, a military base. And this car just got bombed. Nobody knows why. So, after uh, checking out and seeing what's the problem, it was just a car, a truck, which is uh, transporting gas bottles to um, inside the village, which was not allowed. So, nobody knew about it. And inside the truck was a whole family. And the truck got just bombed. Man, you can't imagine. The people just rushed into this truck and they wanted to help. But you know what happened? The military base just started to shoot at this truck. And uh, the people were scared. So they, they couldn't do anything. And the people, like uh, the bosses of our village, they they wanted to speak to the military base. They went there. They spoke to the military base. They said, do we just want to take the, the bodies from the truck. So just let us. They said, okay, you can go. They went there, like four people. They got shelled with a temperature
1: missile, heat he's taking missile. Yeah.
4: Yeah, exactly. And they just died there. And this is something I saw with my own eyes. And like this moment, I just knew a war
1: is just starting in Syria. And that was the first violence you you saw in your village, or the first time you came face to face. How long was it before? What happened in your school? What What was the time difference? So after this happened, the village were taken
4: from the military base. So we had to flee from our village to another village. And our village is named al Muleh Al-Gharbiya. Okay. It's in, in south of Daraa. So we went to Saida. It's in another village. So we stayed there. We stayed there. We had a house and the people were um, just welcoming there. And they said, okay, hey, people just have a house and live your life, okay? It's no problem. We flee inside Syria. We were refugees inside Syria, okay? We lived three, four months there, and I got to go to school. And so the school just got bombed. I mean, you were in class at the time,
1: weren't you? Tell us what happened.
4: Well, at this day, we were writing our English uh, final exams. It's, it was just the final day of, of school. And um, planes... Began striking, bombing the school. Man, you can't imagine this moment. For me, it was like, I am dead. So I was 14 and um, I-, I told myself, man, you are dead. While I was watching the schoolyard, I saw somebody lying on the ground. And it seemed to me like someone I knew. So I rushed up with some of uh, other classmates to him and I couldn't believe it, man. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, it was a very good friend of mine and my cousin.
1: It's a terrible thing when, when your parents have turned around and, and they're, they're saying to you, we need to have some normality for our children. We need to have some routine. So send send. we need to send the children to school. And then the place of safety that you send your children to gets bombed and the teachers get injured or killed and your friends get killed in a place of safety. Exactly. So um, the moment I walked home, my parents
4: thanked God that I was still alive. And it was really the last stroll for my father. Okay. Okay. So this is the moment my father decided. My father was saying, it's not safe. We have to get somewhere else. My father said, guys, we have to do this. Uh, Trust me. So um, a cousin of um, ours gave us details of a smuggler. Uh, Me and my dad and uh, mom and the three brothers had the same opinion as my father. But my married sisters stayed with their husbands. Um, The first step was driving out into uh, the desert of Ledger. It's just a desert of rocks. Anyway, trucks drove us as far as they could. And from there on we had to walk. We stayed at night in in a small building waiting for another group. Well, for sure, um, I couldn't sleep there uh, because there were 75 people in the small room. 30 more people arrived in the morning and um, the smugglers didn't tell us how far they would be going. So we didn't bring a lot of water uh, and many of us left any extra clothes or food behind too. Because no one wanted to be the slowest, actually.
1: And, Sam, is this the point you had uh, your backpacks on? You had, like, the hiking backpacks? I remember you telling me.
4: Exactly. So um, I was told by the smuggler, hey, he he looked at me and he laughed. He said, "Mm, oh, dear. I was like, you just told me it's one kilometer. He said, "Mm, I don't know about that. But if I were you, I would have just thrown this away (laughs) and took, like, uh, the dottles or something. (laughs) So I was like, all right. So I told my father. My father said, It's hot. It's really hot. So you throw them, throw them away. We they said like two kilometers kilometers and we're there. So my father was sure we're arriving in two kilometers. Anyway the the smugglers were saying as I told you, one kilometer and we will arrive, but they were lying. Absolutely lying. It's a good technique. It's a good technique. If you if you want to uh, get somebody to do your um, goal, uh, you have to lie to him. Anyway, um, they, if they said uh, 30 kilometer or 40 kilometer to go, we would have given up. Like, we would have said, man, this is leger, we know leger. So um, that morning, we walked 30 kilometers, 30. We were running out of the food yeah. and the water. Everybody had water, just drank it. But absolutely in secret, so uh, nobody uh, else sees that. Because if anybody sees that, it would get like really risky for him. Because everyone will just attack him and uh, want the water. You're you're 105 people walking in the desert. Yeah, exactly. So pregnant women, um, old people, um, um, and a guy um, who was like really old. He uh, ran out of water, and uh, they just forgot him behind and you know what yeah they forgot him behind and uh, um, his sons they looked after him and uh, they didn't find him any, anymore so they told the smuggler and the, one smuggler went back and he said guys if you want to uh, go back it's uh, I, I'm not going with you because I found him dead
1: so his children were with the father the father had a diabetic attack now insulin exactly and no water so the children of
4: the like, uh, they were like really like 18, 17, and I think a daughter, which was like, I think 14. So um, they just started crying. My mother said, because I was like in the front of the group, I was the youngest. So I had this backpack, I throw it away. So I was like really the quickest. And at some point, I was walking, and these women walked to me and say, Please, please, Hussam, please take my child so just carry my child i see you are just fit and you can walk i can't walk anymore so i was like it's a child it's a responsibility
1: i can't i can't carry this child so when this when these mothers are saying to you please take my child and make sure my child gets the safety they're saying this because they think they are going to die in the desert and they want absolutely their children To live. Absolutely. So this this
4: woman just come to me and give me her child. This very little child. And you're 14 at this stage, yeah? I was 14. So I took the child and I, I watched the mother the whole time. If she walks, I walk. If she doesn't walk, I stay. Because you can't imagine this. This is not your baby. It's not your child. So... um. And and she had like a backpack, so I told the women, please throw your backpack away because it's not realistic. Yeah. So uh, you can't walk yourself. She said, this is the food of the child, the baby. Yeah. This is the milk and the, the, the bunch of other things. Yeah. I did it. I did it like for 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 seven kilometers, and I couldn't anymore. So I I I, 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 I went to the to, to the women and and told her. Um, can I, I I give your baby to, to someone else, so, to someone else? So I went to the to my brother, my older brother Ahmed, and I, and I gave him the baby. Ahmed, my brother was like really shocked. It's not our baby, man. So I was like, it's the baby of this woman. Let's just follow her the whole time, and we just changed. So I walked back and I walked for and uh,
1: the whole time. So tell me, Hassan, tell me what what happened uh, when uh, you? I remember you saying something about. Uh, when nightfall came, when the night time came. Exactly. So um, almost um, at the, the, the sunset, we were entering a very dangerous
4: area. It's very guarded, good guarded area from uh, Assad's uh, troops. So um, um, we went to this area like seven kilometers. We walked in this area. And as I mentioned, uh, the smuggler told us, hey, we have to be very quiet and we are not allowed to do anything so if the child cry like just I don't know put him down do something with him Yeah. and he told us also that similar groups got killed in this area so we have to really take care of ourselves oh man uh, this area was really well guarded so we, we were seen and uh, we got spotted and um, this, the shelling started and in, in the dark, man, in the dark, you, you can't see anything. So uh, my brother, he found a bottle, and um, unfortunately, he, th- he thought uh, it would be um, uh, water, and he drinks uh, finally, and uh, everything's all right. But he, he, he drank from the, the bottle, and it was poisoned. And he got poisoned, and um, he told the store the whole time. We, we carried him, my uh, two other brothers, uh, carried him because I, I I had to watch out for my parents, yeah. my mother and my father, and my uh, two other brothers. They just had to carry him against his will because he he said the whole time, "Leave me here, hey, please," because if you, um, I'm I'm a burden, so you are carrying me. And the shelling started, and uh, just leave me here. I one man dies, but not uh, um, the whole family. So we were like, no, 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 and um, um somehow. I heard the smuggler just talking to somebody on the phone. And he was telling him, hey, please, please, have a million and come. Have a million and come. Have, have a million and come. He was bleeding to him. And uh, it seemed like the truck driver wouldn't want to, he-, he doesn't want to come. The truck
1: driver didn't want to come to pick all you guys up.
4: Yeah, yeah, he, he-, he was scared too. He said, uh, all the shelling and uh, all the bombing, I'm not coming. You give me two million, I'm not coming.
1: This truck was going to take you to the Jordanian border. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly.
4: Yeah. After the rocky way, after seventy kilometers walking. So my father jumped out of the of the nowhere. So I was like, "Oh, father, what you are doing?" So he, he was talking to the smuggler, and he told him like that, "Hey, you know where this truck driver lives? Let's go to him and like try to persuade." Yeah, exactly. Um, him and, and tell him, hey, come. If he doesn't want to come, if it's absolutely no way, we just kill him and, um, and um, Take the fuck. like one man dies and 105 survive. So um, the smuggler was, all right. All right. Good idea somehow.
1: So from your life of going to school, you are now having to t- think about and your family is having to think about murdering people to stay alive and people in your group are having to think about leaving their parents in the desert having to keep quiet so you won't be spotted by military and and shelled and i mean these are for a 14 year old boy and all the other young kids and parents that are there these are the stress it's appalling that families would have to go through this and you don't even know if you're going to die from lack of water, lack of food, shelling. I mean it's a terrible journey isn't it Azam?
4: Well um, um I think people, normal human beings, they just forget bad things. When bad things happen these human beings they just try to forget about the, the bad things. So um, as I'm telling you in 2021 now I had to go to my mother and ask her about the details of this journey because I really forgot about it I like not every detail yeah I just I just burned it in my mind I just want I don't want to talk about it I don't want to think about it because it
1: was as miserable as I'm telling you it's post traumatic stress disorder is where you for one of a better, well, you try and compartmentalize to place it somewhere that you don't have to deal with it because it's horrific. But what happens is it comes out at some stage. It's a, it's a dreadful, dreadful thing. It's 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 a mental health issue. It's appalling. Absolutely, man.
4: Anyway, uh, well, I just want to tell the death uh, uh, story journey to to the end, and I just want to complete it to the end. We were just like really scared. The smuggler told us, hey, guys, if the truck driver doesn't come and like either you walk away and try you to survive yourself or if you stay here, I will try to protect you with my rifle. But I don't think I can like do against uh, hundred soldiers or something, because when they arrive to you, when they arrive to you, you have to choose how to get murdered with a knife. Or get shot. Look, this said this exactly like that. At this moment, my father jumped like out of the middle of the nowhere and just begged him, go to this truck driver and bring him or just shoot him. So the smuggler was like, mm, okay, good idea. I'm doing that, man. And he went and we were just praying to God. That this smuggler, this very one good smuggler, I think, just don't doesn't doesn't flee alone. And somehow, a miracle happens. In the morning, we heard uh, we heard a truck coming. <laughs> we heard a tr- truck coming, and somehow the truck driver agreed to come. And um, we went uh, inside the truck, and we drove like one kilometer, and so we reached the Jordanian borders. And we were lucky to uh, be processed immediately. It was like a miracle. Where did they put you in? Uh, Zatari or Azraq? The day after, we were taken to our first home in Jordan. It was the Azraq camp, man. Actually, my mother just dropped down and she was just crying, man, when she saw all the huts what is this she was like what
1: is this but i mean you lived a, a very comfortable life didn't you you had friends coming around and your swimming pool and all that sort of stuff to have everything taken off you in syria including the possibility of a future yeah. yeah in syria yeah
4: exactly man so um one thing i want to address about um the ezra camp i want to talk about somebody i think i think you know him it's Mitch. it's my english teacher so uh, he worked at the Relief International in uh, the Ezra camp. Mm. And, uh, well, somehow by a miracle, because uh, Syrians, I don't know if you know about that, they don't uh, just speak English. They are really bad English speakers. And somehow I met I met, I met my, my teacher, Metep, and uh, he's a very well-educated um, um, teacher. He was a translator in Syria. And, uh, man, what a teacher, man. So uh, this teacher, he watched out for me step by step. We talked every day in English. He was a gift from God, Hassan, was he? Absolutely, man. Um, he, he taught and supported and guided me like really carefully until I became a um, perfection piece for him. Until I became the man you are interviewing today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. And where is he now? He, he preferred to staying in the camp. He's still in the camp. He's still in Iraq.
4: Yeah, man. And has been for seven years there, giving so much of his time and effort, support, high school students, and trying just to uh, make the world a better place, man. Um, Although he can get a scholarship and go um, um, um to Europe, but he just preferred to stay there and just build generation, which I really,
1: really, really want to express my gratitude for him hassan uh, you were you had already got some family already in in Stuttgart at that stage. But when I met you, it was very difficult for you because you had left the camp with without permission. You also had a problem with your your passport was going to be up in January. You were on a very short window uh, on your passport, and once your passport was out of date, it was going to be impossible for you to travel. I know you, and of course the Syrian embassy in Amman. Um you were gonna run out and you couldn't replace papers because of the war. So you needed to get out really quickly, or if you were caught by the Jordanian authorities, you and your mother would have been put back in Azraq.
4: Absolutely. You if you remember that back in the days, I told the guys, I told Neem and I told the the, the World Vision um uh, guys don't bring police with you yeah yeah you know, i know because uh, i was scared of police if they uh, get us we will just get to deported back to to the camp and if we go back to the camp we will we'll never ever again get pre- uh, permit to to go outside of the camp
1: yeah i remember you told me your papers came through because we were it was very difficult for us to help and uh I, yeah i remember you you contacted me and you said oh, you're on your way and there was a stop off Tell us about the, the plane journey. When you, because you'd never been on an airplane before, had you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, we
4: somehow booked the cheapest plane um, on Earth. Um, I don't know what uh, airlines it was, but I think this, it was the Greece one. We stopped in Greece like two times uh, because an emergency uh, thing happened in, in Greece and we had to, ch- to change the airplane. So... Anyway, it, it was it was much better than the Jordanian-Syrian uh, trip, the death wave journey. After that, man, I can remember this moment. I took uh, two selfies walking out of the airplane in Germany. This was the first time stepping in Germany.
1: I think you sent a photograph to me when you were on the plane. I couldn't believe it. I was really happy for you, man. I was
4: so happy for you. It was brilliant. Lovely, man. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it happened. It was a, a dream coming true. Yeah. And uh, look at me, man.
1: That was Hassam al Haraki, who fled Syria at the age of 16 and now lives in Germany. This is our last episode of Syria's Lost Generation. I hope we managed to convey something new and interesting about the war and about the plight of young people who find themselves displaced across the region. The show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with World Vision International and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups purely focused on the humanitarian aspects of the crisis. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham, and Dan Efron. David Ender's report of the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmell, Josephine El Haddad, Elias Abuata, John Doutsenberg, Lobna Hassari, and Angie Marod for helping bring the series to life. Also thanks to Final Step Studio in Beirut for production help. And thanks to you, our listeners. I'm Liam Cunningham.
0: ACAST.COM